0: You know, when you have an overall housing shortage and so much of people's money is going to rent, then the social services needs become so much greater. You know, we have all of these problems happening all at once. And one thing that's kind of frustrating about the housing discourse is that we have all this focus on like what's happening in the low income community that's blocking a particular housing project that is where we've historically zoned to allow that kind of housing. And what the YIMBY movement really wants to be is like, okay, that fight is complicated and painful, and there's a lot of complexity there, but like, what we need to be doing is looking at the richest neighborhood and saying, why isn't there a housing proposal there?
1: Hi, this is Matt Sleppen, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a very different kind of conversation recorded live in our guest's living room, a conversation with Laura Foote, the executive director of YIMBY Action, which is the national organization for the YIMBY, that is, yes, in my backyard, movement. It's the first leading voices conversation with someone who would say that they lead a movement versus leading a company, business, or discipline within the world of commercial real estate. By now, I think most of our listeners know something about the YIMBYs, who are the community-based and largely young person counter-voice to the NIMBYs, who we know all too well. The YIMBYs understand that there's an extreme housing shortage in our communities, and they take political action to promote new housing development as a counter to all of the anti-development rules, regulations, and the painful local development approval process. This is largely a decentralized movement sprung up across the country, especially from young people who cannot afford a place to live and who understand the laws of supply and demand. Laura both runs the local Bay Area YIMBY group, which changed from its initial moniker BARF, short for Bay Area Renters Federation, as well as the National Network. Laura is not someone who holds back, so this is a fun conversation, and Laura and I jump right into it. We just passed 700,000 downloads of Leading Voices and I'm looking forward to the millionth download probably later this year. The last episode with Owen Thomas was one of my favorites. More than almost any of our guests, Owen sprinkled leadership lessons throughout the entire conversation. Another that did the same and Warren to listen was episode 106, released last October with Dan Doktoroff. For some reason, this episode missed many people's radar screens and it was a great conversation with an awesome leader. I keep saying it, but the pleasure of our work in search at Terra Search Partners is to be able to have this wide range of conversations with great leaders people of all ages, backgrounds, and from different disciplines in the business. You could not have three more different leaders to learn from than people like Laura Foote, Owen Thomas, and Dan Doktoroff, but that's what we get to do in our day job as recruiters with our clients and candidates, and what you get to hear on Leading Voices. Also, looking at our podcast statistics, you are an uncommonly Apple-based listening audience. So as listeners through Apple Podcasts, please take a few minutes to review us on the podcast app and also share an episode or two with a friend and get them to follow the show. This show is about the importance of the work that we do in the built environment. And if you know folks, especially young people looking to learn more about the business, our library is as good an education as there can be about the industry. As always, if you have comments or questions, please email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Laura Foote in our dive into the YIMBY world. First of all, Laura, welcome to Leading Voices in Real (laughs) Estate. The first time I met you, you came to a ULI San Francisco Council meeting and spoke, and It blew me away because I didn't know what a Yimby was. I've certainly heard of (laughs) nimbies all the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were pretty, what year was that? That would have been three years ago. ago. Okay, so we were sort of, you know, getting started and and becoming more of a movement than just a collection of crazy people. Although sometimes I think maybe the movement just is an ever larger collection of crazy people. Because you have to be a kind of... You have to be a kind of wacko to say, okay, yes, I generally care about housing, and I care about it enough to show up at obscure city council meetings and sit through agonizing permitting hearings in order to advocate for a particular building to get built, and then also I'm going to add, I'm going to pay attention to laws, and you know the the whole movement is about saying that we ne- have a housing shortage, we need a lot more housing. The places where those decisions are getting made are not available to the general public. Like, they're kind of happening behind closed doors. I mean, yes, they're happening at public hearings, but nobody's paying attention. I think that's the big picture. And
1: and how do you get wacky people like that to be (laughs) interested in something in which they have no particular self-interest except in an issue, right? Because they're not fighting the thing next door that's going to bug their view. And this is housing that's going to be built across the city for someone else most likely, So how do people develop the passion for that to spend that kind of time on it? I
0: think that's, you know, like with any social issue, if you believe, like all the evidence says, that housing is fundamental to our homelessness crisis, to our environmental crisis, you know, these patterns of land use have these huge impacts on our entire society. Why are we such a car dependent society? Why are people struggling? Why is the middle class being ground down in America? It is because we have a chronic housing shortage. And in order to then sort of connect, like, okay, I have a belief to I'm going to get involved in politics where that is actually that decision is taking place in society. You do have to have a community of activists. You have to have a group of people who are like, yeah, that public comment was amazing. Like, yes, you rocked it. You know, there is this whole part of it that is about creating a community of activists that's going to engage with the public process. Um, and I think I do think that's what the YIMBY movement is really different from people who have recognized that there was a housing shortage before. They've mostly approached the problem with like white papers. They're like, we'll come and we'll explain that there's a housing shortage. And all of the politicians will be like, oh yeah, a housing shortage. Let's solve it. And the Yimby movement was like, there's an organized constituency that opposes building more housing. So we have to be an organized constituency for building more housing. We have to organized politically and I think that's what's been really great but it is a lot more about community building than about um you know writing
1: more white papers
0: I love the white papers don't get me wrong
1: So talk about the YIMBY movement, and I want to talk about it generally, and then where you do it here in San Francisco. And maybe it started here in San Francisco, and you started in San Francisco. So I want to think of it in the particular, and then I want to think of it in the general at the same time. And our listeners are largely a real estate audience. So this is all new to them, although we've all heard about this thing. So kind of introduce the topic and who you are and why we're talking.
0: Yeah, so I'm Laura Foote. I am the executive director of YIMBY Action, YMB obviously stands for Yes in My Backyard. We started about six years ago in San Francisco as a handful of advocates, you know, who just started showing up at public hearings. And I will say when I started, I was working a, what I was telling myself was not a dead-end sales job, but definitely was a dead-end sales job. And luckily my office was across the street from City Hall. And so we had this group text chat that would uh-huh. be like hey they're discussing a housing project at city hall can you run across the street give public comment so i would lie to my boss and i would say like i'm getting a coffee and then i would run was
1: across the street was your boss doing anything to do with housing so you're no, no, not no. associated no, with this we issue were
0: selling wine technology that no one really wanted um so like my day job was trying to get ipad wine lists into restaurants hey god and then uh, you know then i I would get a coffee, run across the street to City Hall, say, hey, we need this housing in particular, and then run back and keep up my wine and tech job. Um... And that became unsustainable, as you can imagine, as the pro-housing movement became bigger and bigger and our advocacy became bigger and bigger. You know, we realized we needed to elect pro-housing elected officials. So we started, you know, a a whole endorsement process and we endorsed pro-housing legislators and we helped get State Senator Scott Wiener elected. And, you know, it's just sort of mushroomed from there.
1: So let's go back to the beginning What is it that takes someone who's selling wine technology for iPads (laughs) to care enough about housing as a general topic that doesn't affect you personally in the case that the hearing is about to run across the street to do that? What sparked your interest in our topic?
0: So actually it was a NIMBY. So I... You were a NIMBY. No, no. Okay. I had a letter. So I moved to San Francisco. My my significant other at the time got a job here. So we moved here. From? From uh, Chicago at the time. Okay. Um, which was already an expensive city. And mm-hmm. then we moved to San Francisco and it was gobsmackingly Crazy. expensive. Uh-huh. And we were renting more money than I have ever spent on rent in my life. Uh-huh. And... I was just appalled and then realized that everyone around me was suffering as well. You know, like I was making more money in this sales job than I had ever made before. And yet I had less disposable income because so much of it was getting eaten by rent. I had a friend who was living with a hoarder. Mm-hmm. I had a friend who was living with an ex and it was like deteriorating and they were stuck and they couldn't, they were like, am I going to go move back in with my parents? You know, it's, once you realize that all of the stories of your friends are actually housing stories uh-huh. and that we were all suffering, you know, then it's like, okay, we have a housing shortage was a pretty – every yeah, everybody that I knew said we have a housing shortage. This is crazy. Rents are too high. Uh-huh. And then I started paying attention to local politics, and they did not think we had a housing shortage. They were saying we had something they were calling an affordability crisis. And I was like, okay, well – what does that mean? Like, well, the housing's unaffordable. I was like, okay, yeah, like I got that. Mm-hmm. But like it's for a reason, like the housing didn't just magically become, it's not all, I mean, you know, then they would reach for all kinds of, you know, it's the foreign investors and it's the, this and it's the, that and mm-hmm. it's, you know, capitalism. And I was like, okay, well there are many cheap things in capitalism. Like I'm not, I'm a little bit of a socialist, but mm-hmm. there are things like housing has not always been expensive under capitalism. So what is going on here? Then we realized that it's a policy problem. And then, you know, we took it from chatting about this on the internet to then actually doing something about it, which I think is that like critical step of like, how do you actually go from ranting on the internet to, okay, we're going to get involved in politics and just show up. And politics, I mean, local politics is actually so available. Mm -hmm. You could just show up, and it's actually like, Very non-professional. I mean, I'm sure for your audience who are trying to get their permits and and showing up these local hearings, like, yeah, local politics is not dominated by professionals. So like, yes, I blended in with the other like non-professional weirdos who just like show up. And they're
1: all showing up to say, no, don't do this. But now here you are saying, hey, maybe it's a good idea because we kind of need housing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I got a letter in the mail from somebody who was mad that they were going to turn a one unit one-story building and do a two-unit, two-story building. And I was like, well, this is nuts. Like, right. we need that two-unit building. And, and th- once you start scratching at it, it's very addictive because you realize how – I mean, this is not true for everybody, I guess, although I'm trying to make it right. addictive for everybody. But it's like picking up a rock where it's like this entire world you didn't realize was happening when you start figuring out how does housing – actually get permitted. Mm-hmm. And it just goes on and on and on of like these hearings where people are talking about all of the wrong things. They're talking about shadows and zucchini gardens and uh-huh. like all of this kind of nonsense and you realize that like nobody's just saying like hey guys we have a housing shortage. And if you just add that little voice of a few constituents, and it does have to be constituents saying we have a housing shortage and like your shadows are not necessarily as important as this other big problem we have. It's also, you know, it's addictive because you do make an impact. Every time you show up, you can see The change happening in those hearings. Uh
1: So you get inspired by this. We're going to come back to the philosophy of the general versus the specific in a few minutes. But you get inspired by this for some wacky reason, but I'll buy it. (laughs) And then you help to, A, turn this into a job, and then you help to turn this into a movement among both local people and then people like you elsewhere in the country. So kind of talk through that chain of yeah. Events and evolution.
0: So, you know, this conversation was happening in a lot of different places at once. You know, so I think San Francisco was having a very heated version of that conversation. But a lot of cities and and sort of this this growing energy saying we're, we're going to have a, you know, we, we need a revolution in housing. And there were you know, people come at it from, I think, kind of three core values. There's people who come at it from the equity perspective. Mm -hmm. There's people who come at it from the economy perspective. Hey, we have a housing shortage. It's a drag on our economy. And then we have environmentalists. And I will say like the environmentalists often are really tied up in transit world as well. Mm -hmm. We started showing up at hearings. Other people were also getting active. And then you realize that in order to actually make structural change. Mm-hmm. You have to have a thing with a name, right? You have to have a an organization. You have to have ways to communicate with one another. We start having like meetups and bars, and we start having, you know, a list serve, and mm-hmm. start having, you know, when we decided to get involved in uh, elections, mm-hmm. is this big leveling up. We have to incorporate an entity.
1: So before elections, yeah, yeah. it's around individual projects that are getting Yimbied away or yimbied to take forever to cost more money so it could just cost more money then it becomes policy and politics on top of individual deals as you think about this
0: totally because once you realize that you know i mean i think you you, this is the scratching at the surface Mm -hmm. the individual project is subjected to the legislative framework And so once you start getting mad about showing up for an individual project, then you start getting mad at the entire system. And then you realize, like, well, who's writing the laws? Okay. And who's making the sort of, like, project-by-project decisions but also setting up this entire nonsense burger? Mm -hmm. And that's when you start getting involved in elections. And that's when the community across the country really started communicating a lot more with one another as mm-hmm. well it's like people are getting active and elections are fun so you know we would we were like canvassing for scott Weiner, mm-hmm. and people across the country are like wow they have a housing champion we should get active mm-hmm. we should get involved in elections and then maybe we can have a housing champion as well mm-hmm. and i think that you know, we start having, like, like you come to, like, Yimby Town. There's, like, a national conference where, like, other people who are getting active in their communities coming together and sharing what they're doing. So, you know, there's uh, the people who are now Abundant Housing Massachusetts uh, hosted one when they were just a little thing called a Better Cambridge, and then they decided they're going to tackle all of Massachusetts. And Yimby Action, we went from sort of just getting active around um, San Francisco issues to, you know incorporating an entity that could take money so that I could quit my job Mm -hmm. so that we could, you know, have membership dues so that we could have affiliated chapters then across the state and get people active in their community endorsing candidates, getting people elected, having parties. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean I think this whole sort of system of of getting people active is it's actually really fun. You know, it has to be if you're gonna yeah. thrive off of volunteer energy. And when
1: does this start? When did you create an organization for this to become a job?
0: So we the first thing we incorporated was for the twenty sixteen election, the PAC that Helped get Scott Wiener elected. Uh-huh. And then in 2017, we incorporated Yimby Action, uh-huh. which was then the 501c4 politically active nonprofit. Uh-huh. And Sonia Trous, who I think you've interviewed. Nope. Oh, okay. So. Uh, but she
1: did barf. She and did barf, barf, barf was in the Times. So, what what was barf? I like the word. Barf or... was
0: the listserv. That was one of our first things. So, it was Bay Area Renters Federation, deliberately uh-huh. kind of in your face, radical, saying, we need more housing, we need it now. Now. Um, and actually, when I started getting active, I, I was like, OK, we we need a group that my mother would be comfortable joining. Mm-hmm. So not barf, not barf, you know, like uh, to to be, you know, this one two punch. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then I started grow San Francisco, which then became Yimby Action because uh-huh. we realized we needed to go bigger than that. And, and we merged, you know, we were the Yimby party for a while. So it was Grow mm-hmm. San Francisco and Barf were together, the Yimby party. And that's what we did, um, the pack, in order to help get Scott and other people elected. You know, and then from there we had sort of the membership and realized that we needed to go statewide and and now national. We have a, you know, Yimby Denver is a chapter, Neighbors for More Neighbors, Metro Atlanta, which is really cool. Go
1: for it in Atlanta.
0: Atlanta. We got two chapters in Florida.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Right. And because you might think of this as a, so questions of demographics of who you talk to, because you think, I think of this as, Young people, and I think of this as blue state people, but not necessarily.
0: No, not necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, one of our our greatest chapters is uh, Orange County, which is Mm -hmm. very purple. Yeah. You know, which does make for a lot of hearty internal arguments about Mm -hmm. some non-housing-related topics. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, luckily for us, although it, it, it is hard But luckily for us, the housing shortage is kind of crosses ideologies. You know, there are people who, from that economic perspective, right, there are the sort of like econ 101 perspective. We have a housing shortage. Mm -hmm. We need to stop banning housing. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about regressive regulations, Mm -hmm. it's easy to get both progressives and conservatives to agree that regressive regulations are bad
1: as a concept it is although i worry about what mm, both progressives and there've been a lot of articles about progressive areas are the worst in terms of NIMBYism right the most conser- NIMBYism sorry <laughs> i'm going to get this confused <laughs> But the more liberal areas, and I listened to a wonderful uh, Ezra Klein podcast a couple weeks ago, and he said, what is it about blue states that make them the most regressive around subjects like this, around public investment? And talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think that what's interesting is that we have this net of bad housing policies. Mm -hmm. And the net actually exists everywhere. I actually kind of disagree with Ezra Klein. I think the net exists... can't do that, but a, that's okay. I know, I know. He's so charming. We're going to come
1: back to this <laughs> soon.
0: I think the net exists kind of everywhere. And then where you have economic growth mm-hmm. is where you push up against the net most noticeably. No, mm-hmm. most noticeably. And so... In blue states and blue cities is where we're having a lot of economic growth. Mm-hmm. And so it's where you see that pushing up against the net and the most pressure and the most
1: pain. Mm-hmm.
0: But it's not like conservative places have really liberal zoning. You know, I, the, the regressive zone
1: well, Think of Houston, just to play with that for a minute, where zoning Houston- is wide open. It
0: is, sort of, except they have all of this, you know, parking requirements and other things that sort of incentivize the sprawl Mm -hmm. anyway. You know, it's not like you end up, you have other, there are a ton of different ways actually to have these regressive regulations. I mean, that's what's so irritating about land use is you can thwart housing Mm -hmm. thousands of different ways. You Mm -hmm. can thwart it with the zoning. You can thwart it with the permitting. You can thwart it by requiring excessive amounts of parking. You know, I do think that like Houston's a, fine example, but it really does incentivize sprawl. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about wanting dense, vibrant, walkable communities where we really can build the housing we need, we're going to have to change a lot of different intersecting policies.
1: So alongside we need more housing is we need more housing in dense areas and dense density and urbanization is aligned with the values of just, yes, let's build.
0: Yes, I and I think also because... That's what people want. I, I think that we're, maybe there was a time in American society where people genuinely wanted sprawl, but that's not what consumers want anymore.
1: Actually, no one wants sprawl, although people do want a little backyard once they have kids and schools in that area. So there is something with some level of space associated with what people truly do want.
0: Sure. I mean, I live in a duplex and I have a backyard, you know, yeah. like so we share a backyard with the family downstairs that had, you know, a kid who's grown up in that apartment and has a backyard and, and parks serve that. I mean, I, I grew up in a city. I just think that we're consumers are voting with their pocketbooks or yeah. wanting to live in denser environments. So whether that means you get a lawn or not, I think is sort of like obviously kind of low on the list of things that people actually want. Yeah, fair deal. And also yeah.
1: there's different kinds of people. So the people who yeah. want more space, people want less space, I buy that forever. And I believe densification is part of what our industry is doing, but I love it because I get excited around dense areas, <laughs> even though I live in the country. Well,
0: there's places to go get brunch. I mean, <laughs> this is the thing. Like, I'm like-
1: Walk to coffee. It's my word. Walk to
0: coffee. Uh. Like, yeah. People, I mean, I can't imagine how lonely. I get that some people want to live in the suburbs. More power to them. But there's a reason, like, the entire 80s movie tropes are about how lonely and isolating the mm-hmm. suburbs are. It's just physically very isolating.
1: Let's leave the suburbs for an minute and talk more about densification, talk about this movement and what it means and how you fight it and how you get there. And it's interesting You talked about three core values of three groups that come together Mm -hmm. that help support this. You said equity, economy, and environmental. But it also aligns with the development interests. And how do the development interests, how do they collide and enhance and collaborate with that which you do? Because they are generally aligned.
0: They are generally aligned, although I'm always surprised how sometimes in practice there's less alignment than you would think. Uh So we have, the system we have is a really, you know, in in many places where developers are trying to build multifamily housing, the permitting process is, am I allowed to curse on this? Yeah,
1: I think cursing is fine.
0: So let's, let's say the permitting process is deeply fucked. Yeah. So you have to get through all of these gauntlets Mm -hmm. of neighborhood opposition in, in many cases. Mm-hmm. And and you know, the direct neighbors. And there's like the negotiating and the what are we gonna like literally give to the opponents in order to get them to go away. Mm-hmm. And Yimbi is a disruptor in that, mm-hmm. right? And and we are for the project. We're wholeheartedly for the housing. And sometimes there are developers who are like, I just want to make this deal and make the opponents go away. Can you guys shut up? You know, and I think that especially to the developers who have existed and and thrived, you know, and made a lot of money in the existing system are sometimes skeptical of the Yimby movement coming in, you know, and and they see us as like, you know, too radical. We're going to rile up the opposition. And I'm like, guys, like the housing riles up the opposition. Like they cannot get more riled. Like you're proposing building a building. They hate the building. Like I'm not going to rile them more.
1: Right. Having been to hearings and having worked with developers and having worked with companies that represent developers, I would think that they don't like wildcards because they want right. to script stuff. And you guys are a little wacky. I'm still trying to understand what that <laughs> means in the world, but that which is a little bit less controlled is harder to deal with, but I think it's all aligned towards that same goal, which is going to get stuff built, which we have to do. And if we can get it in the ground a year, two years quicker, right. then we save so much money and this is just wasted money.
0: Totally. I mean, and we also are, you know, because we're sort of deeply, more and more deeply involved in sort of all the layers of politics, Yeah. we're also talking about, you know, changing the laws in order to make it easier and faster to build. And I will say that I, I think a lot of developers... You know, maybe, you know, they've been doing it for a long time. They don't think that that's necessarily possible, you know, and then it happens and they're very grateful, right? We have changed a lot of laws, especially in California. Mm-hmm. We have passed laws that have, you know, and, and they're taking advantage of bills like SB 35 that do all of this streamlining. But like right up until the day when the governor was signing that bill, I had mm-hmm. developers telling me like it'll never happen. Mm-hmm. And like, and they still tell me, oh, it won't work you know, the city is not actually going to recognize the state law. And I'm like, okay, well, we now have a lawsuit arm. So if the city is not following the new law that we passed, we'll sue. You don't even have to be the one that sues. Like Mm -hmm. you – often the developer doesn't want to go toe-to-toe with the city because they're like, you know, they don't want to have an adversarial relationship. Yeah, Right.
1: So let you do that. We do that. And and then talk about places you're aligned and not aligned. Where do you – standard deal with rent control?
0: So we think that rent control doesn't have to be harmful, that a well-constructed rent control policy can, you know, you have to make sure that it's a well-constructed rent control policy. Oxymoron,
1: I haven't seen the word (laughs) well-constructed rent control together in the same phrase, but go ahead.
0: Well, you know, I think, I mean, my ultimate dream is that we are building so much housing that rents come down that you don't even need a rent control policy because- rents don't go up like the only reason rent control policies become really relevant is when you have a chronic housing shortage and rents just keep going up and up and up and up and up
1: you haven't used the word supply and demand but just remembering econ 101 it's the only thing i remember about it but that is the one kind of elasticity i can remember that word but Supply and demand does drive the world, and this is a supply and demand problem. Totally.
0: And also, though, I think we have a mixed economy, right? So we have some of our economy is subsidized affordable housing. Some of our economy is market rate housing. Then we have this sort of like in-between space of the rent-controlled housing stock, which is only in some places. We're much more in favor of... Direct subsidies, right? We we like subsidized affordable housing, whether that's you know pure social housing or mm-hmm. whether it's nonprofit built and maintained. You know, I think that directly subsidizing housing we're, we're just so far off from a place where the market would provide for the lowest income people. So we need the government to spend more on that.
1: Right. So if supply and demand answers the overall housing issue and dollars get balanced for right. supply and demand, so rent should be where they should be and could be, and they work you still have a problem for low income people because they can't afford to do that and therefore for low income people subsidized housing is associated, is aligned with what you think about 100%. stuff so we have, have to a
0: shortage that. of i mean Huge. this is the thing about shortages we have a shortage of subsidized affordable housing i think and... it's like a
1: third i think it covers maybe a third or less of the people who are low income yeah i mean so.
0: it, that that doesn't surprise me i think there's like different numbers across i mean this is the other thing is that we have a shortage of low income housing and then we also build it in places sometimes that don't have access to jobs and schools. Yep. And so then you're trapping people in cycles of poverty as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like we're pretty radical. Like we want to build subsidized affordable housing in Beverly Hills. Like mm-hmm. I want to build it in the highest income communities. I think that the barriers that these communities have put up you know, or I mean, I, we can go back through the history. It's fundamentally based in racism and designed to keep people of color out. And income is a proxy for that. And we can go into all of that. But you know, that's something the YMBs talk a lot about.
1: which part do the YMBs talk a lot about? About subsidized housing, or the proxy for racism, or the proxy for income inequality, or this is we you know keep about, how about that, but it's not
0: zoning was designed originally huge. as a policy to huge. keep people of color out of communities, and it's continuing to do that to this day. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And how much of what you guys, do you look at all on density non-housing? So do you support or get involved with, hey, we're putting a market here or we're putting retail here or we're putting an office building here and that's density too, but non-housing? not
0: housing? Do- not really. We we try to stay pretty focused on housing. You know, I, I mean, I love coffee shops, don't get me wrong, right? Uh-huh. I'm I'm for them, but I think we really feel like the number one problem right now is the housing shortage. I can't wait until we solve the housing shortage and we get right. to go work on other problems. I think that there's certainly the permitting process harms other kinds of development. But it is much more acute in housing than in other things that our
1: economy needs. Uh And if you look at your groups and the way that you attack this, who attacks against it? So I'm thinking of several different interests. Mm -hmm. One is I think of specific people feeling harmed by an infrastructure project, so now generalized infrastructure and one of the things on the Ezra Klein podcast that I just loved, he spoke to this woman, Jerusalem Damas Demsis. I'm,
0: Demsis, she's Demsis. like, oh, you should read everything she writes.
1: Okay, cool. Well, she she was great on this podcast. But one of the things that is just straightforward, but she said the harms are specific, but the benefits are diffuse. Yes. So and I'm going to mash that up with a book I read, which I've quoted on the podcast before called The Ministry of the Future, if you're The Ministry of the Future. No. Great book. They set up a UN ministry to represent future generations. Oh. So if you look at environmental policy yeah. and you have a whole group speaking for the future people, then all of a sudden policy changes, right? Yeah. But you're speaking for the ephemeral general right. versus I'm speaking for the guy who's going to lose his view, and the guy's gonna lose his view is really pissed off.
0: Yeah, but this but- applies to like so much of government policy. Like if we make decisions on government policy in general based on just the needs of the individual we're going to fail as a society like we do have to make society-wide decisions it doesn't mean that maybe we should like come up with like what's the dollar amount that a view is worth like I actually would be willing to be like we're not gonna listen to the person who's losing their view but Mm -hmm. we are gonna decide that it's worth like I don't know a hundred dollars per inch or something of view and you are going to lose your view. Here's your cash payout and enough already. The problem is when you just argue and, argue and argue and argue and argue and argue and then nothing happens and he wins because he's argued you to death.
1: Right. Okay. So there's the guy with the view, but then there's other groups who want to go slow on this. And it may be the labor unions. It may be different environmental groups. Maybe they all use Sequa in our state <laughs> in order to attack this stuff. But what are the interests? Are are there interests beside the neighbor that. There's
0: so many interests.
1: So talk about a couple of them because that's who you're dealing with.
0: Yeah. So there's all kinds of. It's like, where do you start? So, in general, like let's say we're talking about an individual housing project in a relatively wealthy community. Where they want to, you know, build an apartment building and, and, you know, let's say it's the first apartment building in the neighborhood. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one case where it's relatively clear cut that you're going to get people who are afraid of change in their community.
1: They're afraid of that element.
0: Yeah, that element. That There's element. a lot of veiled. Racism I like that word. Yeah. Okay. There, yep. Right. There's, I mm-hmm. mean, my favorite is in Cupertino, they were going to build. Cupertino is the headquarters of Apple. And there was a proposal for an apartment building. And there was all this talk about how men were going to live in the apartment building who worked at Apple and they were going to prey on the young schoolgirls. And I was like, that is the like craziest. Like, you're worried about Apple engineers. <laughs> like, Hit it because it I was might, like too close to the high school. I was like, this is crazy.
1: I'm gonna worry about the insta Instagram ones screwing up our kids, but not physically, but <laughs> I
0: know I was just like, What do you even say? Like the things people get in their heads, I don't know. I was like, Do you really mean this? Like, is this really a genuinely held fear you have? And like right. and all, as with a lot of these things, it's like tied up in their fear of other people which mm-hmm. like humans have and we need to deal with but these are things you should talk about with your therapist this is not what we should be basing our public policy on right and definitely it doubly applies to any proposal for subsidized affordable housing the right. amount of fear people have about those people are going to live in my community Yep. you know the drug dealers are going to come in and it's like you know, you can have a conversation with them where you're like, hey, being unhoused makes all the things you're afraid of far worse. Mm-hmm. So the solution to the things you're afraid of is building a lot of housing. But when someone's coming from a place of fear, you know, it's, it's just it's it, it's very hard to, to get them to realize that that's not based in reality. Okay,
1: so we're fighting the neighbor with a view. We're fighting the neighbors two blocks away who don't want subsidized housing or transitional housing for homeless. And people are scared of apartment buildings. Are we fighting vested interests too besides individual, groups of individuals or business interests?
0: So you can end up with businesses who like think that parking will get worse and whatnot. There are... You know, any business that exists today might think that if you change something, their business will not work in the future. Mm-hmm. I have been surprised the degree to which small businesses, I would have thought, and and many more small businesses are getting to be pro-housing, but some of them start from a default of fear of change. And, and you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're small margin businesses. So, you know, they don't see like, oh new customers, they're like change. I don't know if I'm for change. Then you have, once you have... A permitting process where there's a lot of places to tap the brakes you end up with um, when you have organized labor that uses all of those places where you can tap the brakes mm-hmm. to negotiate especially large projects we're talking mm-hmm. about with the developers to get higher wages, to get, you know, more of the project being union labor. That whole process definitely happens. Mm -hmm. You also end up with a hole in the, the most expensive places. But this is, like, not super typical for, you know, a lot of, like, other places. But in San Francisco, the ones that get a lot of the headlines you have large projects are the only ones that can get through the permitting process. And so they have a lot of extra money potentially. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a lot of interest groups who are like, okay, let me get a piece of that as it goes through the permitting process. Mm -hmm. So whether it's negotiating with the NIMBYs and trying to placate them with a community center or investments in something around them, or whether it's, you know, people who are living in historically disinvested in communities who are like, hey, okay, I don't want to say yes to this luxury tower coming into my neighborhood, but maybe I could get to yes if we also invested in you know, a community nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And I actually like, though I think it stalls housing production, I have a way more sympathy for that perspective than, you know, we're talking about historically disinvested in neighborhoods. Right. And then you have people who take advantage of that and are just corrupt and are like, pay me and I'll support your project. You know, all mixed up in that.
1: Well, a lot of those historically disinvested neighborhoods, particularly in San Francisco, are no longer historically, they're historically disinvested. They've become gentrified. And now that next project is colliding between the interests of the lower income people who've been there for a long time, the new Mm -hmm. yuppies, if you will, who are there more recently and then, the continued trend
0: yeah and there's a real philosophical difference like some people think if you stop the building you can stop the yuppies right and there are which i think is unfortunately not true right Mm -hmm. i think this is like we have a displacement crisis because we have a housing shortage and so the yuppies are out competing other people in the existing housing stock you know, there, there's some. You know, there's a there's a great viral TikTok that refers to the glass towers as yuppie containment devices, um, which I thought was like, you know, it's but then funny.
1: they need a place to okay, live, and they then need a place they're
0: going to gonna... live. So if they, you know, and this there is. And I also think though that there are people who are like, okay, I know that we need the housing, and actually, the historic disinvestment it does continue because you have people who are not necessarily. You know, when you have an overall housing shortage and so much of people's money is going to rent, then the social services needs become so much greater. Mm -hmm. You know, we have all of these problems happening all at once. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's kind of frustrating about the housing discourse is that we have all this focus on like what's happening in the low-income community that's blocking a particular housing project that is where we've historically zoned to allow that kind of housing. And what the YIMBY movement really wants to be is like, okay, that fight is complicated and painful, and there's a lot of complexity there. But like, what we need to be doing is looking at the richest neighborhood and saying, why isn't there a housing proposal there?
1: So let's use, as an example, you said Beverly Hills before. And first of all, the I assume you're not saying all subsidized housing should go in wealthy neighborhoods, but some should. A representative but a decent amount. a
0: amount, yeah.
1: And so use Marin County in the Bay oh, Area as yeah. an example. I used to live there. And I'm curious about this. it's the wealthiest county in the country. I'm actually on the board of a food recovery organization in Marin County. We have 20% of the people in Marin County are food insecure. Wow. Believe it or not.
0: I can totally believe that. I mean...
1: But it's a county where we're not, it's very, very, very hard to build subsidized housing and particularly subsidized housing near public transport, which doesn't exist as well anyhow. So unpack a little bit of that.
0: And hard to build market rate housing. I mean, they're just like, they have effectively shut down housing production. Uh And then, you know, and then they complain about people living on boats. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think it's really sick. You end up also with this cycle of fear where people are, they see more homelessness So then they come to fear unhoused people. Right. And then they fear building the housing that would help house those people. Mm -hmm. They fight even harder to block that kind of housing being built, and they just make the problem worse.
1: Okay, so let's think about you guys, come back to your organization, and use that as an example of this, is how do you help change the mind in the public discourse in a place like Marin County or Fairfield, Connecticut, or wherever it is, yeah. what what does your organization do to change that discussion?
0: So we get people active in that community. So uh, I'm going to do a shout out for Jenny Silva is one of our organizers up uh-huh. there. And, you know, she's writing op-eds all the time. She's just trying to like change the conversation in the sort of North of San Francisco. She's doing right. a great job. Um, we also have helped pass state laws. So... What's happening right now in California is this thing called the housing element process. Mm -hmm. So every region gets given a housing goal. They have Mm -hmm. to rezone and they have to put forward a credible plan Mm -hmm. about how they're actually going to reach that goal. Uh And the cities (laughs) spend a lot of time writing up a quote-unquote credible plan that they know will not work, but will be acceptable to the state agency as like, look, see, we did our homework. And everyone's like, you liars. So what we're doing is, and especially this is true in Marin and Napa um, and all of these exclusionary communities, how do we actually look at those plans and report to HCD the ways in which those plans are not credible mm-hmm. oh you you put all your housing on a cemetery uh, I don't believe uh-huh. that you're going to be building housing on a cemetery so that's a lot of the work that we're doing right now in um, you know some of it's about that like drip campaign of of changing the public discourse and showing up and writing up eds and some of it's about like there are laws that we could be enforcing mm-hmm. and you know I think this is also a big place where we differ from the developers because the developers have to live in the existing milieu and we can get out there and say like no like local city council you are violating state law you have to comply with state law talk to your city attorney we're going to bring in the state attorney who's Mm -hmm. now rob bonta our Mm -hmm. new attorney general is radically pro-housing and he's started up a strike team that's going to be enforcing these things i know a lot of the developers don't want to like call in the attorney general but like we do you know i think that's where we think that things can be different
1: so and let's contrast this again and then we'll move on in subjects a little bit but i'm thinking of uh, the developers who show up at this have a suit on and they're (laughs) controlled and scripted and they're careful and cautious and they want to do the right thing which makes total sense you guys feel different you feel edgy on purpose it it's a movement, it, 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 but it's a
0: movement of regular people too. Like it's not I'm all putting just quotes like, around movement too. So it's it's like edgy. Like you know, I mean, let's use Jenny Silva. Like she's a pretty like I'm more edgy than her. I, you would actually probably think if you met her mm-hmm. at a community meeting, you might make the assumption that she was gonna say something nimby. Uh-huh. I mean, that's like our superpower. I think right. is when we can get the average-looking community member who walks up to the podium and the developer's like, oh, no, what's this person going to say? And they're like, we need more housing in our community. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about is the people who are less active yeah. and who might range from being anti-housing to pro-housing or maybe just haven't really thought about it before. Mm-hmm. And that's where we really have the the discourse is changing. Those, those op-eds, the you know every person talking to their friends about these issues the ways in which the chatter on social media the jerusalem demsises of the world all of that kind of drip campaign about how we have a housing shortage you know us being on this podcast saying Mm -hmm. we have a housing shortage like there are people who are listening to this the first time and being like gosh what does that mean for me? How can I change the conversation in my local community? Maybe you can write an op-ed. Mm-hmm. All of that creates the like zeitgeist that then we can catalyze into an organized movement that sends out action alerts for specific projects. Mm-hmm. You do have to have like a general changing of the conversation, but you also have to like get those people onto a list that then you can send out the action alerts to, right? This is where mm-hmm. organizing becomes really Important because I think that the number of people who are pro housing, you know, as we've seen, every time I go. To a new place, there's people who are like, oh, my God, there's a YIMBY movement. This is fantastic. And I'm like, great. Get on my email list. Right. Right. That's the important next step is how do we then organize them? Because the NIMBYs have been organized for a long time. You know, they're on the homeowner association email lists. The, The neighborhood association level has been dominated by NIMBYs, which then made the pro housing people not show up to those things. There's no
1: national movement of these people. But it's the muscle memory of how oh, they yeah. do it locally is that they knee-jerk into this movement quickly. Yeah. But there's no one who, like, does that for a living unless they are a PR firm that NIMBY's hire to go fight <laughs> shit because they can right. fight it anywhere.
0: But then also, though, they've pulled the decision-making down to the level of government where they have the most power. Right. So part of what we're doing is, okay, when you have something that is of the general benefit— The decision-making needs to move up to the places where it's easier to do that math for an elected official. Mm -hmm. So how do we make state laws and federal laws that actually curtail the way NIMBYism can operate in our society?
1: And and so a couple things. One, lots of progress has actually been made. Single-family zoning is being attacked across the country, not just here, not just in Minnesota. But those things have changed. We have moved the conversation pretty far. The New York Times, there's an article, some great article a couple weeks ago about southern a community in Southern Cal where they were doing, you know, uh, accessory dwelling units and people were freaked out about it. But it's like, okay, <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. So the conversation has moved. One thing you said before is you hate white papers. It <laughs> seems to me that you're talking white paper here, but you're more of a, you're doing the same thing that the white paper people write but you're an organizer not a white paper writer yeah that's what i'm hearing is the distinction
0: totally so like for instance there's been a really like great conversation about accessory dwelling units forever Mm -hmm. and you know now in maryland our maryland chapter is fighting to legalize adus in maryland they've got a really great campaign with a lot of smart coalition partners you know but they also like they didn't before have somebody who was like we're going to do a petition and get a bunch of individual people who live in communities i think you know that's the part for elected officials they need to feel like their constituents are behind them as well mm-hmm. and especially when it comes to issues of land use you know they they hear from the semi-organized opposition who gets radical and opposition to a lot of these change there hasn't been anybody organizing the supporters and that's what we're really trying to do is say, okay, get on the email list and then we'll send you your, your action alert for saying, yes, I want ADUs to be legal. Mm-hmm.
1: So we have concurrent issues. And some of these concurrent issues are loud and clear. We have a concurrent issue of racial equity in our country, mm-hmm. that housing has been a big part of the problem in lots of different ways. Absolutely. We have a concurrent issue of environmental stuff that actually we better solve it quick. Yeah. So that there, we're running out of time yep. on that, and housing ties into both of those mm-hmm. as well as anything else does. So if we think much
0: of... more than many other issues sure. do. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so if you look at your next five to ten years, think of the work that you're doing and how it plays into those trends together.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I hope that one of the things that has been really interesting as far as like the education happening on this issue and the public discourse is that i really do think we're going from the place where the the white papers are getting into the public discourse i mean there's mm-hmm. great books like segregated by design mm-hmm. you know the color of law people are really talking about the history of racist housing policy in america and they're really starting to actually connect that to how our current policies perpetuate that segregation and perpetuate the racial wealth gap, mm-hmm. how our current housing policies are driving more people into poverty. And I do think that, you know, if we're seeing all these different things happening at the same time. And maybe there's an opportunity for us to really put housing as a solution mm-hmm. to the racial wealth gap. How are we going to change our housing policies so that the racial wealth gap starts shrinking? I think that there's an appetite for that. There's an appetite for solving our, you know, we have a general, we have to solve the climate crisis. Okay, a key component of that is walkable communities. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we have to do that in practice. We can't just keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that hopefully over the next five years, we're going to see more communities saying, ah, uh, our land use values, are, you know, are, are, what we're doing is at odds with our values. Mm-hmm. So hopefully more individual communities are going to pass more laws that legalize density. Mm-hmm. I do think that there are fundamental incentives underlying some of these processes as well that the federal government is a little bit going to get involved in. There are states that have decided that they're going to take a more active role in curtailing the acts of cities who want to stay segregated. Uh But even though we have passed some of those laws, when the rubber hits the road, the city is like, well, this is new. And like, why can't we just keep doing things the way we have been doing? And so enforcing those laws – actually means that in an ongoing way the state has to crack down on cities. And that's right. an uncomfortable place for a lot of the like way that we've previously done the relationship between these two levels of government.
1: And mm-hmm. the three levels of government, because you had federal, there's almost no tie federal. there. It's too diffuse by the time it gets down to these kind of behaviors, unless you could tie some kind of subsidies to it. I
0: mean, this is where it's like, what happened when we passed the first round of anti-racist policies in America and sort of everyone gained the right to vote? Well, in practice, local cities and states right. did a lot of small, discrete things to actually thwart that in practice. Mm-hmm. And we had to have a whole system of government that decided it was important to crack down on that. And then that war keeps going, you know, and it gets eroded, and then the crackdown, and then eroded and crackdown. Right. And we're at a point where people are recognizing on voting rights that the federal government needs to crack down again on some of our more malicious cities. And yep. I think we need to have that same attitude when it comes to housing. Mm-hmm. But we're pretty far off from that, it seems.
1: Yeah. So let's think of people listening to the podcast who are largely in the industry. And I'm deeply involved with the Urban Land Institute. I'm deeply involved with the National Multi Housing mm-hmm. Council. We met with an Up for Growth meeting yeah. uh, on Capitol Hill a couple years ago. Um, talk about How you your movement is aligned with and works with those efforts to also change these conversations?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think when we're all sort of going in the same direction, so up for growth has um, like a couple really great bills. One of which is to incentivize local governments to address their uh, exclusionary housing policies. It's an incentive program. It's a nice little bill we all get together and say, pass this bill. And, you know, we pl- we bring the grassroots army to say, hey, there are people in your, hey, congressperson, there are people in your community who are paying attention to this bill, please sign it. And I think that that coalition makes a ton of sense. And I think that the developers are able to come in as, you know, people with technical expertise mm-hmm. and able to like be a really important part of that lobbying effort. And, you know, we're bringing in the grassroots effort. I think that like, all the way down to the project-by-project level, I actually hope that developers get more excited to have the grassroots army supporting them. You know, you can go to our website and you can ask, you know, go to yimbyaction.org slash project support and we send out action alerts to support it. And I hope that people realize that, like, Maybe they're not going to be able to control every individual activist who agrees with them, mm-hmm. but that it's really powerful and positive to have organic backing for an individual housing project.
1: Totally true. And It feels like strange bedfellows to some degree and awkward bedfellows. <laughs> and it may be that if you're constituency shows up for something and they feel aligned with developer and the word before developer in the popular press is dirty. Right. <laughs> which I, like, why is that together? And part well, of it's what like we... like
0: your, your things have to be really fucked up because... When you have a consumer advocacy group, which is kind of what I think of us right. as, right? We're we're advocating for a wide range of consumers, but fundamentally we're a consumer yeah. advocacy group. When the consumer is on the same side as the producer. Right. Like that's when you know things are deeply fucked up. Right?
1: <laughs> well, let it be because and also those people who are developers at the same time we care about housing, we the industry cares about housing policy. The industry wants to solve these things in a way that our life's work is tied up in success of this stuff.
0: I cannot wait until we have solved the housing shortage so that as a consumer advocacy organization, I can go back to being anti the producers because, you know, that's a more natural (laughs) state of affairs. But we have to solve so many problems before we can get to that point.
1: Uh, Back to strange bedfellows, which I totally, (laughs) but it makes total sense. And that's part of the... I smile when I talk to you about this stuff I be, because it's different than the quote-unquote vested interest, which I grew up in. I'm in a vested interest, so I like vested interest. But to have a non-vested interest care about these subjects and actually try to move the conversation makes me beam with joy because I care about cities, right? We all do So, because we're all consumers too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that what's been interesting for us is... is- there are both vested like the as a consumer advocacy we have people who are like hey I'm a stunted millennial and see that they're you know for me it's like is home ownership possible in America for me right now probably not you know maybe but you know not likely and then you have people who are worried about it for their kids mm-hmm. right so you'll we have a lot more Homeowners who are members because they look at what's going to happen to their kids and the now it's their grandkids, and their, their grandkids because their grandkids are yeah. going to live
1: three states away in totally. order to be able to afford and we don't want that.
0: Yeah, I uh, one of my favorite public comments was somebody who came up and they said, you know, you're the real tragedy for the people who are opposing this project is that your kids aren't going to be able to afford to live in this community and your grandkids are going to take their first steps and you're never going to see it. Yeah. And this <laughs> NIMBY woman in the back audibly gasped, you know, I could say, I was like, yeah, that's right. You know, she, she knew it was true. And she like really had that, you know, rarely do you have moments where an opposition person really like rethinks what they're doing, but you can right see there. that it was like right in her heart. Yeah.
1: You can get them because the other side, of them you know wants to do these things they just don't want it in there in
0: their backyard i mean this is the other thing is like oh this is where i feel like i sometimes i love the opponents because they're like no i'm pro-housing i just don't think we should build this project and i'm like like i kind of i believe you like i believe you you're at war with yourself right now and that's hard for you
1: Yeah, totally. So what are we missing in this conversation that our audience should hear from you so they know how to support what you do, be part of what you do, and ally with what you do?
0: So... I mean, obviously, we love money, you know? Send it. Yeah, send us money. Um, what's, what's
1: the website address again?
0: Yimbyaction.org. Okay, cool. Y-I-M-B-Y-A-C-T-I-O-N dot O-R-G. Got that, okay. Um, and, but also, I think each person listening to this podcast, you have a personal network. You have people who have the potential to really care about this issue. And probably you've been ranting to them about the housing shortage. And so I hope you've been ranting mm-hmm. with your friends and family about the housing shortage and, and about how how you are, you're a developer and you're providing housing and that's a good thing and people should want it. Great. Okay. All of the people who believe you are potential members of a YIMBY organization in your backyard. And I think that developers have always been really hesitant to organize, you know, and I think this is like, You don't personally have to organize, but if you can sort of nudge the people in your community, the architects, like if the entire industry of people who are building housing actually also thought of themselves as constituents, it's such a large community that actually could make a political difference.
1: It's interesting because people in the industry, it sounds wrong to our listeners here, but we're like sneaking around because we want to make sure our deal gets through. Right. Right. Versus holding our heads high and say we're solving the housing shortage and i know uli MHC, all these organizations are now aligned to understanding that change in perspective but that's what we should do
0: totally and also you know supporting each other's projects you know i think this is the other thing is that like i i mean how many times have you wanted someone to come and give public comment for your project like go and support a friend's project and give public comment for, you know, your maybe your competitor's <laughs> project. I think that there's just this real opportunity to think of yourself not only as a producer, but also as a constituent in your community. You have the capacity to, you know, if you have a pro-housing elected official, throwing a fundraiser for them and throwing a small dollar fundraiser where you're actually activating your your friends rather than, you know, I think we do see like the developer network will like get involved in elections a little bit sometimes, but getting, you know, canvassing for candidates. There's just this whole community I that I think people underestimate how they can interact as a constituent.
1: And also as they interact as a constituent with those elected officials, instead of only having other developers who are moneyed interest, Mm -hmm. cynically said, have you there too, because you're an affiliated interest that feels really different.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you can email me, you know.
1: What's your email? <laughs>
0: My email, it's it's, it's really <laughs> sneaky. It's laura at yimbyaction.org.
1: Okay, last <laughs> question on leading voices is always the same, which is, what's your advice? This is, this is interesting. We're going to maybe shift the question. It's always, what's your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business? Oh. And I'll let you answer that any way you want.
0: Oh, well, if you're a young person getting involved in the real estate business, you should also get involved <laughs> in the Yimby movement. I mean, actually, it's really fun that's some of our most active members, and I think that we encourage that. I think people maybe they're worried that they're a developer, and so they wouldn't be welcome in a consumer advocacy group. And like, let me tell you, we're a long ways off from that. You know, I can't <laughs> wait to kick all of the producers out. But right now, it's like people who are involved in building housing are are so welcome in the MB movement.
1: You, let me turn the worm with what you just said a little bit, because I think it's deeper than that. The real estate industry is responsible for the climate change that's going to occur in a positive way, right? That we're going to to reduce 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 carbon. So that's our industry is going to do that because we're 40% of greenhouse gas. Our industry is going to densify our cities in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Our industry is going to help with affordable housing. That is what the young people getting into the industry are going to do in their career. So they have a mission. They think they're making money and having a career. And yes, please do that. But there is a mission to that, which we do. And you've really identified that in this conversation. So
0: Absolutely. You- and I, I just want to add also that probably if you're the youngest person on the team, you're going to be the one who's able to navigate the movement part of the Yimby movement as well. And so cynically, let me add a little like extra. right? Yeah. You've done the high-minded, which normally I do, but I love it. <laughs> but also you can be the person on the team who wrangles the supporters of the housing project and then you've brought a lot of value to your team because you're going to be the one who's like oh man i know how to get them to write a petition in support of our project and help them edit it the youngest person on the team is often the person put in charge of the radical yimbis coming to support their project and i would love for you to come activate our our community
1: it's cool hey laura thank you very much
0: <laughs> thank you this is great
1: Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast-wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at TerrasearchPartners.com. See you next time.